If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 18. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible uh, book of early church history, and uh, we're going to be continuing that this morning. Next week, obviously, we'll have a special Christmas message on Christmas Day, but today we're in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 17 is what we're looking at, and I've entitled this morning's sermon as God's Protection. God's protection. It's Acts chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 9 through 17 together, and we'll dive right into our time this morning. Luke writes, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. God, we're grateful this morning to be able to come together, to open your word, to be sitting here together in this beautiful auditorium, this special time of year, and we want to learn what happened here in this first century. We want to learn more about Paul, his missionary endeavors, his time here in Corinth. We thank you for for just reminding us and showing us in this passage that we're looking at this morning about your protection and about how you still had plans, you had uh, purposes, you had incredible things that you were doing through him, in him, there in that area in Corinth. And today, God, we know that the same is true of us, that you are our God, that we are your people, and that you have plans for us, and that you desire to use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. And in all of that, you are our great protector. Thank you for allowing us to study this passage together this morning. Use it to change us and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the early American Indians had a unique practice of training young braves. On the night of a young tribal boy's 13th birthday, after learning everything he could about hunting and about scouting and about fishing, he was put to one final test. He was placed in a dense forest to spend the night there entirely alone. Until then, he had never been away from the protection of his family and of the tribe. But on this night, on his 13th birthday, he would be blindfolded and taken several miles away into an unfamiliar territory. Then, when he would take the blindfold off, he would find himself to be in the middle of the thick woods and would be terrified. One particular young man that this happened to was out in the middle of the forest, and every time a twig snapped, he visualized a wild animal ready to pounce. And after what seemed like an eternity, 
If you can imagine being out in the forest by yourself all night long, finally dawn broke and the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. And looking around, the boy saw green shrubs and tall trees and the outline of the path. Then, to his utter astonishment, he beheld a figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was his father. His father had been there, keeping watch over his son all night long. And I'm so thankful that we have a God in heaven who looks over us and who protects us. Even when we're facing fierce difficulty and danger, we know that we have a God who protects us. Our God is a mighty warrior. He is a powerful defender. He is a sovereign protector. And I love how Jesus discusses the power of God to protect our eternal security in John 10, 28 through 29, where Jesus says, I've given them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Protection is important. That's because the world is a dangerous place. And some people put their, their trust in themselves. It, it's like being self-insured or self-employed. If anything happens, you have to bear the cost yourself. And the, the world is full of people who will trust in no one but themselves and often find out too late that their resources couldn't match the need. Well, praise the Lord that as Christians, we are protected by God. We're not expected to be the sole protector of the universe or even our own lives. We're protected by God. And this doesn't mean, of course, that we'll never experience risk or danger, but it does mean that in the trial, in the difficulty that we face, that God will never abandon us. He empowers us. He equips us. He enables us to face the storm. And I love how David in the Old Testament trusted in God's protection time and time again. When he was getting ready to go to battle against Goliath, you might remember he was testing the armor of Saul and trying to figure out if he was going to go fight Goliath with that armor on. And then all of a sudden in there, David decided to take just the slingshot, right, and the five stones. And it says in 1 Samuel 17, 34 and following, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant who has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. You see, David had experienced God's protection and he was not afraid to do whatever it was that God had called him to do. In fact, later towards the end of David's life when he had experienced God's protection again and again in a myriad of ways, we read in 2 Samuel Chapter 22, and David spoke to the Lord the words of this song one day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence and I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. Well, today I want us to look at 
God's protection of Paul, the apostle. He was protected by God's power in the midst of another difficult and dangerous time. And last time we were together in this chapter, we saw how Paul left Athens to go to Corinth. And there he met Aquila and Priscilla, a dynamic couple who faithfully ministered together as husband and wife. And they were particularly hospitable as they sought to serve the Lord together. And Paul was a bivocational minister at times, and he earned his living through tent making. Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla for a time at Corinth, for they too were tent makers by trade. But when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied solely with the word. He was able at that time to devote all of his effort, all of his time, all of his energy to the proclaiming of of the gospel, proclaiming to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. This means that, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the anointed one, that Jesus was the one prophesied from old that would come and save his people from their sins. But the Jews had rejected Paul and his clear message of the gospel, so Paul declared that from now on he would go to the Gentiles. And while many in Corinth opposed and reviled Paul, there were two converts when we ended our text last time, Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God next door to the synagogue, and then Crispus, and we read about them in verses 7 and 8. And at the end of verse 8, it also says that there were many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So this morning, that leads us now into verses 9 through 17, and in this passage, I'm going to give us three headings that will demonstrate how God protected Paul while he was in Corinth. We're going to look at first how God spoke to Paul, verses 9 through 11, how God protected Paul, verses 12 through 15, and then we'll see how God avenged Paul in verses 16 and 17. So let's start with number one, God spoke to Paul, verses nine through 11. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, is these these are basically five things that God said to Paul. Number one, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we read it there at the beginning of verse nine. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. So Paul had faced many threatening circumstances in his efforts to faithfully preach the gospel. And on this trip alone, this is his second missionary journey, he had been imprisoned in Philippi, he had been run out of Thessalonica, he had been rejected in Athens, and now he's facing opposition in Corinth. And we don't know for sure, but we kind of get the feeling that somewhere between verses 8 and verses 9, that the situation had deteriorated into something much more difficult and dangerous. And so in this moment, the Lord gives Paul a vision by night, verse 9 says. He, he had a vision. This is one of six visions in which Paul received, all of them aiming to give Paul encouragement, instruction, and direction. And this particular vision brought about direct words from the Lord. And there are five distinct things that the Lord said that I want us to look at this morning. We've looked at number one already. We're still introducing it. Do not be afraid. Now, I find that a little bit interesting because I kind of see Paul as one of my heroes, maybe one of every Christian's heroes because of his courage, because of his tenacity, the way that he cut against the grain. And yet now the Lord is telling him, Paul, don't be afraid. 
And so there must be a reason for that. You might even think, could Paul actually be afraid? Could he be struggling with fear? He seems to be so bold so much of the time. Was he really struggling with fear? I mean, this is the man who got up after being stoned in Lystra and went back into the same city to preach the gospel again. Could this man who had been beaten in the past be afraid? Could this man who sang songs of praise while in the Philippian jail, even though he was in stocks at midnight, could he be afraid? And the answer is yes, he's a human being. Of course he could be afraid. And it's okay that Paul was struggling with the temptation to be afraid because God was encouraging him directly in this verse to resist the temptation to let sinful fear grip his heart. And Paul must have been struggling with fear because of the hostility of the Jews and because he knew what had happened to him in the past could happen to him again here in Corinth. You know, when we're struggling with ungodly fear, we are more focused at times on our circumstances than we are on God. And so many times we allow our fears to prevent us from walking in faith. Our fears cripple us from accomplishing what it is that God has called us to do. And I'm so thankful that when I face fears in my life, I can remember passages like Psalm 56, verses three through four, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, in whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what can flesh do to me? You can be reminded this morning that when you struggle with fear, just as Paul did in this circumstance, that you can put your trust in God, that you can fix your mind on God's word, that you can claim God's promises. Another encouraging passage would be Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you believe that this morning? That God is your help and he is your shield. This verse reminds us that we are to fight sinful fear with the fear of God. It says again, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. So you fight fear with fear, sinful fear with the fear of God. We're gonna exchange the fear of man with the fear of God. He is our help. He is our shield. This is what God was reminding Paul of in Corinth, and this is what God reminds us of every single day through his word. The second thing that Paul said to Paul, five distinct things. Number one, do not fear. Number two, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. You see it there at the end of verse nine or in the middle to the end, um, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Well, why these words? Well, speaking is, is what Paul did. And if he was gripped by fear, he may be tempted to stop speaking. But speaking was his occupation. Speaking was his calling. How could Paul do anything but keep on speaking? And obviously, there must have been some temptation for him to stop. And if we were in a similar situation today, we might think, well, I've been preaching and I've been teaching, but it doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit in fact, nobody likes what I'm saying. And the temptation oftentimes would be for you and I just to, to be silent. 
Or the temptation would be to maybe change the strategy from teaching to something else. I mean, maybe we should move from preaching and teaching to having more casual conversations, or it may be better for us to just do interviews or to tell stories or to become more political or to acquiesce to the culture or to look to satire or to humor or to sarcasm to somehow get the message across. We we might think that in our day and age that we have to try something different something more soothing, something more relevant, something more artistic or something more contemporary or something more entertaining. I had a guy tell me one time that he wanted to reinvent church. He told me that it was too boring. It was too predictable. It was too old-fashioned. He wanted to figure out a way to put a, a new spin on it so that more people would be interested in coming. I just want you to notice what God says to Paul here. He doesn't say anything about changing his message. He says, keep doing it. Keep persevering. Don't be silent. Keep speaking. Keep preaching. The results may have been meager initially there in Corinth, but God is saying to him, keep speaking, keep teaching. Why? Because God has chosen to bring men and women to Christ through his word. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him um, whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone doing what? Without someone preaching. That's That's how you get the word across. You preach it. You teach it. That's what God's word says. They are to listen. We're to preach. There's times we need to listen. Someone's preaching to us. But the point is, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Someone has to go. Someone has to preach. Someone needs to be sent. Someone has to bring the good news of the gospel for men and women to be converted to Christ. And that's true on the mission field, and that's true in our churches right here today. We are called to be heralds of the truth. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. We are called to go into all nations, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, as well as observe those same truths here at home. And then Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word's got to be taught. We can't be silent. We can't just paint pictures. We got to say it. We got to declare it. And hopefully, this time of year, we go tell it on the mountain, right? We don't hold back anything. There's great joy in proclaiming this message of the gospel. And hopefully, that conviction is something that's being driven down deep in our hearts today. We can't afford to be silent about the glories of Christ. We can't afford to be silent about the clear teachings of Scripture. We cannot afford to be silent about the fact that Jesus is our King. This reminds me of what Luke records in the triumphal entry when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the young donkey. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road and they waved palm branches in the air. And then in Luke 19, 37, it says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for the almighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in earth and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
What do they want? They want them to be silent. Teacher, we don't like what they're saying. Can you tell them to be silent? Rebuke your disciples. And you remember Jesus' answer? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Love that passage. Love that reminder. Don't make a rock do what you were called to do. You were called to cry out, right? Don't let the rocks cry out while you remain silent. You and I are called to speak up. We're called to speak out. We're called to speak the words of truth, the words of praise, and the words that Christ alone can save us from our sins. This is the encouragement that God's given to Paul. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. You cannot remain silent. And then the third thing he says to him in verse 10 is, I am with you. I am with you there in verse 10, for I am with you. This is a virtual repetition of what Jesus has said to his disciples in the Great Commission. And I'm sure that Paul was recognizing these familiar words of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did Paul Ever find himself wondering if God was really with him? I think while he may have had a completely, he may never have completely disregarded Christ's words, there may have been times that he struggled to believe that promise in that moment entirely. And this is now just a, a gracious reminder of God speaking to him, hey, I have not left you. I have not abandoned you. This was God doubling down on his promise. This is God saying to Paul, I am here. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And God said this to his people at the end of Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I love how this same reminder was given to Joshua when he became the leader after Moses' death. So God reminded it of them at the end of Moses, now at the beginning of Joshua, chapter one, verse five, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And Joshua 1, 9, as you know, says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. While we know this is true, there are times we still struggle. Do you ever find yourself trying to be a witness for Christ in a difficult situation at the office or at your school or a friend that you're trying to share with and in that moment you begin to be afraid and, and you begin to think, is God really here with me in this moment? You ever had that thought, is God really with me? You may be tempted to think, is it worth it? Should, should I just give up or am I doing the right thing? I mean, just yesterday, as my wife and I were passing out Christmas cookies with the book, I had that, that sinful thought of like, man, is this really going to make a difference? You know, we're just standing at the doorstep. It's not like we got to get into the whole Christmas message, but hey, here's a treat and here's, here's a book for you. And I'm thinking, you know, is this really going to make a difference? I mean, it's just so subtle, right, that our hearts begin to fear just a little bit. And then we got to be reminded, hey, God's with us. And God's called us to be a voice, and God's called us to share, and God's called us to step out, and God's reminding us, hey, you know what? I'm with you. 
He can give you courage even to hand out a little booklet with your Christmas cookies to your neighbors. He's with you. And this, this has to be reminding us this morning, and especially during this season of Matthew 123, that says, behold the virgin, quoting again from Isaiah, but behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is with us. He's with us in the person of Christ. He's with us in all of our circumstances. He's with you every single day. You're never alone. He's with you to strengthen you and to empower you to do what he's called you to do. God said, I am with you to Paul. He said to him, do not be afraid. He, he said to him, keep speaking, don't be silent. And the fourth thing that God said to Paul is this, do not, or excuse me, no one is going to attack or harm you. No one's going to attack or harm you. Again, verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. The same sort of trouble and persecution that Paul had experienced earlier is now beginning to happen there in Corinth. And we read about it in verse 12, which we're going to get to in a minute, where it says the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. They, they were going to try to hurt Paul, but they failed and they would not succeed. In fact, if you look at verse 11, it says, and he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so in this situation, God would ultimately protect Paul from the onslaught of persecution. And we know that during the Exodus, we see God continued to protect his people from, from ultimate harm. He, he rescued his people from the Egyptian army. We know that God rescued the Israelites from the Amalekites as Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms. We know that God gave victory to Gideon with his 300 men over the Midianites. We know that God gave David the victory over Goliath. We know that God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. We know that God rescued Daniel from the lion and I love how God says to his people Israel in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. He's with you. He's not gonna allow ultimate harm or attack to destroy you. And as the church today, we can take comfort in God's words to us in Romans 8, 31, when it says, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? And in Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, praise God for his protection of us. Praise God for his power. Praise God for his promise that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Martin Luther was in the middle of the Reformation and the Pope was trying to bring him back into the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope tried different ways to do that. And one of the ways that he tried to do that was to buy him with gold. There was a cardinal 
that later wrote to the Pope, and he says, the fool does not like gold. Speaking of Luther, the cardinal, when he could not convince Luther, said to him, what? Do you think that the Pope cares for the opinion of a German boar? The Pope's little finger is stronger than all of Germany. Do you expect your princes to take up arms to defend you? You, a wretched worm like you? I tell you no. And where will you be then? Luther's reply was simple. Where I am now, in the hands of Almighty God. I love it, right? Luther was just like, I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not changing my course. I'm in the hands of God. And that was true of the Apostle Paul. And that could be true of you this morning, that nothing can separate you from the presence of God. And one final word that God spoke to Paul here, E in your outline, I have many people in this city. The end of verse 10, for I have many in this city who are my People. There were many people in Corinth who belonged to the Lord in the sense that he was working in their lives and they would ultimately be saved. Interesting, this word people is the same word that God often used of his people Israel. This shows that God's plan to save Jews was also his plan to save Gentiles alike, to bring them into the assembly of the church. It was his people, his covenant people. And of all the things that God said to Paul in this vision, these five things, this seems to be possibly even the most important. What, what, what people was God talking about? It was not the ones whom Paul had already spoken to. We read of two converts already, but that's just a few in a city like Corinth. God said, I have many people in this city. It must have been because God, who alone is able to know and see the future, as well as determinate, was looking ahead. He was saying that by the preaching of the word and through Paul's ministry, he would bring many people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There were many people who would come together in that church in Corinth and they would bear witness to Christ in this most corrupt city. And what, what an encouragement this promise must have been for Paul. I mean, again, he's in a pagan context, in a very pagan culture. We talked about it's the most corrupt city that we've seen yet on all of his missionary journeys. And yet God guarantees that Paul's labors in Corinth will bear fruit. And you have to be reminded with this promise that it's God who appoints people to eternal life. That's what God does. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many people as were appointed to eternal life believed. We're talking here about sovereign grace in election. God's, God's not saying there might be a lot of people here if those people choose to follow you. He's saying, no, I, I have people in this city who will come because God has elected them. God has chosen them. God has determined to save them. And we see this again throughout his missionary journey. I, I just read to you Acts 13, 48. There are many who are appointed to eternal life. How about in Philippi when Lydia was converted? It says of her, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia, Acts 16, 14, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Of, of a worshiper of God. And then it said, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
another evidence of God's sovereign work and salvation. It was the Lord who opened her heart. Paul preaches this doctrine of election and and predestination firmly in Ephesians chapter one, where he says, and even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Uh, Paul, Paul preached the same message of election in Romans 9, 11 through 13, that they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, we're just seeing the consistency of Paul throughout his ministry preaching the gospel, but also teaching us this doctrine of election, this doctrine of predestination. This doctrine did not originate with Paul. Certainly, it's what Jesus Christ taught himself in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He says, but But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us that people are born again because they're born again by the will of God. This is what God does, and this is what God was doing in Corinth. He's simply reminding Paul, while it may seem like there's a lot of lost people, It may seem like you've already been kicked out of the synagogue. Well, there's been two men who have been saved. I have many in the city. You're to stay right here. It's not time to run. Paul was used to moving on fairly quickly, as we discussed in his first and even second missionary journey, sometimes only staying a day or two, sometimes just a few weeks. And yet God here is encouraging him, hey, look, I'm with you. I want you to park it right here. I got a lot of work to do in this city. I will be saving people in this city, so don't be silent. Don't give up. Don't stop preaching. God is clearly calling people to himself, and he would be using Paul and his preaching as a catalyst to produce repentance and faith in the hearts of his people. And so with this assurance, look at verse 11 now, and so he stayed. Right? God speaks to him, encourages him in this vision with these five statements, and what did he do? He stayed. He didn't run. He didn't move on. It was God's will for him to stay, how long? A year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul Paul ended up spending more time in Corinth, 18 months, than he did in any other city except for Ephesus where he stayed for two years. Now, there was the time he spent in Caesarea, about two years. The time in Rome could have been longer than two years, but that was while he was in custody. As far as his missionary journeys and church planting efforts, Corinth was second only to Ephesus. And it was because of this encouragement that God spoke to Paul, and he reminded him of these five truths that he wanted him to stay right there to bring saving grace to many. Well, now that we've seen God speaking to Paul, let's move on now to verses 12 through 15, and let's see how God protected Paul, how God protected Paul. First of all, he protected him from a united attack. There was that united attack that we referenced in verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. 
Now, God's already encouraged him with truth. I'm with you. No one's going to harm you. But he's still got to face this trial, this united attack. And Paul's Jewish opponents had watched in frustrated rage as more and more people now are probably coming to faith. He's been there now a year and a half. And finally, in desperation, they tried to get the Roman authorities to put a halt to Paul's preaching. And so Gallio was a Roman proconsul and governor of Achaia, and any judgment pronounced by him could potentially establish a legal precedent, thinking that Gallio would be friendly to them and rule in their favor, the unbelieving Jews brought Paul before the tribunal. This, this word tribunal is also the same word as bima. It's where we get the, the name, the word uh, judgment seat from. We think about that a lot of time, the judgment seat of Christ, the, the Bema seat. And so they're bringing Paul in front of the tribunal, in front of the Bema, and this judgment seat there in Corinth would have been a large raised stone platform that stood in the marketplace in front of the residence of the proconsul. And it served as the public court where he tried his most important cases. And, and the Jews didn't always agree on everything, but this was a united attack, the verse says. They're, they're united on this. This was them rising up in one accord. This was them coming together in order to condemn Paul and his preaching throughout the Roman Empire. That's what they want to do. They want to outlaw Christianity throughout the empire. And people oftentimes are found to unite themselves against God and against the Bible and against Christ's church. And people are tolerant today of literally anything except absolute truth. I mean, that's always been true. But have you noticed how that just keeps going and going? Where the President of the United States would invite certain people into the White House to congratulate them. We're talking about people of no moral substance. We're talking about shameful acts that are being celebrated and tolerated and accepted. And yet, if Kirk Cameron wants to read a book about Christ and the lives of his children, he can't enter into a public library anywhere in the state. Over 250 attempts. But you can have a drag queen show up and read any given day. People are uniting themselves against God, against the gospel, against his church, and that's what unbelievers do. They're, they're tolerant over anything except the Bible, except the truth. People don't want to be confronted. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be challenged in any way. And Jesus told us this would be the case. John 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And I would just say to you, what, what a shame it is that Jesus uh, also personally experienced this kind of united attack against him when he was here prior to his crucifixion. You remember the account of Luke 23, 10 through 12, that says the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And you remember this verse? It says, and Herod and Pilate became friends. 
with each other on that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Herod, the king of the Jews, Pilate, the Roman governor, they hated each other until Jesus came up and they said, you know what? We hate him more than we hate each other. Let's come together and unite ourselves so that we can have this man destroyed. The same thing is now happening against Paul. The Jews there are uniting themselves. They're, they're all teaming up against him. And 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So there is a united attack. And then we read in verse 13 about an unfair, your next blank, an unfair accusation. Verse 13 saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And so at this time, Judaism was officially, it was actually a, a tolerated by the Romans who at this early date viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. And not all religions were allowed to express themselves because Rome demanded emperor worship, but Judaism was allowed because of its monotheistic emphasis and their belief that there was only one God, it so ran contrary to the pluralism of Roman paganism that they had refused, the Jews is, had refused to worship the emperor or any of the Roman gods. And so Rome ended up giving in and exempted the Jews from this requirement. Uh, Rome did this in part because the Jews were obstinate. And they also did it in part, some historians say, because Roman general Julius Caesar won a battle, an important battle, several years earlier with some of the Jews' help. And so soon Rome recognized Judaism as a legal religion and they allowed the Jews to worship freely. And so the Jews in Corinth had that freedom, but they're trying to convince Gallio that, that the new Christian faith that had now entered their city through the preaching of Paul had nothing to do with Judaism, and therefore it should not be permitted under their allowance. And so when they argued that Paul was persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law, they were accusing Paul of being an outcast. If you remember again, the Jews had actually become extremely legalistic, requiring extra components of old covenant law to be done according to their approval that included all kinds of things, not the least of which was circumcision, which the, the Jerusalem council had overturned that concept and said, look, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to trust in Christ. But these Jews still didn't like Christianity, so they're trying to say they're breaking our law. They're, 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 this teaching is external to Judaism, therefore it should be banned. And it is possible, as I mentioned before, that if Gallio had ruled against Christianity, it could have at that time been outlawed throughout the whole Roman Empire. So this is a big deal. What's going to happen at this particular court case? And today, people, again, are still accusing the Christian faith of being unlawful. I told you there's not a lot of room for us as Christians to exercise our liberties and freedoms, right? Christian faith is being considered unlawful. More than ever, religious liberty in America is under attack. The unbelievers of today would love nothing more than to ban the Bible from the public square. That they would love to prevent evangelical pastors from preaching the truth. And they would love to accuse churches of being unloving and therefore unlawful if they're not willing to participate in same-sex marriages. 
That's what's coming down the pike. We, we already know it's coming, right? They, they want to attack us and say, now we're being unlawful if we don't allow and celebrate and perform these kinds of things. And in times like this, again, we've got to never forget that we're going to be accused. We're going to be the bad guys. We're going to be the ones that their culture is going to want prosecution against. And at times like this, we've got to remember 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes against you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We don't just rejoice at the coming of the baby Jesus. We rejoice when we suffer with this Jesus and standing for what he stood for. We rejoice in all things because it is a privilege to identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are insulted for the name of Christ, the Bible says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You want the spirit of God to rest on you? Then stand with him when it's popular and when it's unpopular. Proclaim him when it's easy and when it's hard. Stand with the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be glorified in your life. It's a privilege, it's an honor. Paul saw it that way, I hope that you see it that way. And we see next, verses 14 through 15, there is an unexpected answer to the situation of how this goes down, verse 14, but when Paul, who was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is in the matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. So it's a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a surprise to us. Before Paul had the opportunity to open his mouth and defend himself and share his testimony as he so often did and would have been happy to, Gallio dismissed the matter with utter contempt. He, he told the Jews that this was strictly a matter of their law and that no, none of this kind of conversation really comes under his jurisdiction or his responsibility. He, he in effect, threw their case out of court. And in Gallio's mind, this was a matter of no concern as he was completely oblivious to their religious convictions. And if a serious crime had been committed, such as armed robbery or aggravated assault or murder, these violent type of crimes, and Gallio would have heard them out. But this was an accusation that had to do with words, not with actions. Therefore, he actually and officially ruled that there was no crime. Nothing had been committed since the issue was merely one of semantics or that went against Jewish law only. And so when the Jews persisted in arguing their case against Paul, Gallio refused to be a judge of such things. This decision was crucial for in many ways it was tantamount for legitimizing Christianity in the eyes of Roman law. And in Proverbs 19 21, it says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So in their mind, they thought they had a nice case that this is going to be outlawed, but the Lord had different plans. He had a different purpose in this particular situation. The plans in the mind of the Jews, united attack against Paul, failed miserably. It was 
it was always going to be God's purpose that would stand. And so that leads us to number three. We've seen that God spoke to Paul. God protected Paul. And now we see God avenged Paul. He avenged Paul, verses 16 through 17. Your next verse says, verse 16, the next blank, the Jews were driven away. They were driven away. Verse 16 says that, and he drove them from the tribunal. So Gallio, the political leader there in Corinth, drove the Jews away from that judgment seat. He drove them away out of the center of town. You can't remain here anymore. He drove them away, and their case had been cast out, and now they were not welcome to be there in the front of the residence of the proconsul. And certainly a passage like Psalm 141, 9 through 10 comes to mind. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. That's exactly what happens here for Paul. Verse 17, your last blank says, the ruler of the synagogue was beaten. He was beaten, verse 17. So they drove them out. Verse 16, verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What's going on here? Well, this verse seems to be referring to the angry Jews who vented their frustration by taking hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beating him in front of the judgment seat. This seems to be most consistent with Gallio's refusal to stop the beating. Whether Sosthenes was a Christian at this point is not known, but according to 1 Corinthians 1.1, he was later identified as a believer in Christ. If he had already become a Christian, the Jews' motive for beating him is obvious, but if he had not yet become a believer, his fellow Jews were probably upset with his failure to win their case before Gallio. As the leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes would have no doubt no doubt been the one who presented the case against Paul to the judge, but consistent with Gallio's refusal to interfere with the internal arguments of the Jews and in recognition that it was a religious issue for them, Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. This passage here has shown us about how the wicked turn on the wicked. Again, Sosthenes came to Christ later, but the Jews like, you couldn't push this through court, we're gonna beat you up. You've been seeing that in the news or at least hearing it on the briefing sometimes from Dr. Albert Muller that the evil, wicked people eat their own. Pretty soon you're not bad enough to hang with us anymore. You're done because you, you, your evil only stopped here and the evil of the culture just keeps going. So it seems like they're very upset at Sosthenes. Somewhere in there, And again, I'm just reading between the lines here. I think Sosthenes is like, you're gonna turn on me like that? Maybe I don't need to be a part of this Jewish faith that has no grace, no mercy, filled with anger. Maybe he saw Paul's response in it all. Maybe that's the very thing that won him to Christ. Whereas again, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, we see that this this man, Sosthenes, became a Christian. Well, what a... What an interesting story, right, to read through this here this morning. And we're just being reminded, again, that this passage has shown us God's protection of the Apostle Paul. 
And we've also learned that, that Paul was slowing down his focus and his process as he spent a year and a half here in Corinth. This allowed him to teach in depth over a period of time in order to, to, be, to be able to disciple and better ground those new believers in God's word. Now we can't always take a text like this and simply transfer it to our lives as if God were saying identical things to us precisely, such as no one will ever attack you or no one will harm you or even I have many people in this city. However, I cannot help but think that if God has placed you in a particular place, it is because he has a particular work for you to do right there. And for that reason, we should be encouraged in principle and faithful to do what God's called us to do with all of our ability. And I believe that God does have many people in the world that he's called to be his own. And while you may not be promised they actually live on your street, maybe they do. We don't know. So let's take a plate of Christmas cookies and a book out this week. You have an opportunity to pick those up out there, but our job, I'm simply saying, is to keep on keeping on. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't be discouraged. Christmas is our holiday. The world's on our turf right now. And we have the opportunity to shout it out and to hold nothing back and to be clear about what it is that we say. And this sermon, again, has been about God's protection. And I wanted to remind you this morning that God protects those who are his. If you're not his this morning, you're not under God's protection. He's not promised to be with you. He's not promised to help you. In fact, his judgment is against you. But the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that God sent his son into the world to save his people from their sins. And we want to invite you to come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ this very day. You could be visiting family or friends, or you could be just kind of hanging out here uh, for a long time, and you've never turned from your sin. You, you could be gripped by fear this morning about various things in your life, and the only solution is to come to Christ. And we've got to be reminded this morning that we all deserve God's wrath and his punishment against sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is uh, as it comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He came, he died in the place of those who would repent and believe that if you would turn from your sin this morning and turn to Christ, you could be born again. And so if you'd like to talk about that, after we sing our last song, we have a few people right here next to this door. We have a prayer room right over here. We'd love to talk with you, encourage you. If you're here and you need to come to Christ, you're here, you're discouraged, you just want prayer and encouragement. Let us minister to you together as we wanna be the church that functions together in ways that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to spend quality time in this next little passage here in Acts 18. So many things to be encouraged by, so many things to be challenged by. And I pray that you would give us that kind of, that kind of courage, that kind of boldness. And yet at times when we are wavering, that you would remind us we don't have to fear, that you are with us, that we're not to be silent, that we are to speak out that you are still a saving God who has many here in the world that you will draw to yourself and we get to be the privileged ones to be the beautiful feet of those who had preached the good news. So help us to do that to ourselves first, to 
remind ourselves of gospel truths and then to preach to others throughout this week and throughout this holiday as we mix and mingle with friends and family. May Christ be glorified. May he be praised. And if we're shut down or persecuted or scolded, let it come what may, for we can ultimately never be silent. We want to shout it from the mountaintops and to share of the good news of great joy that was given to us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.